For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Uh, so we have a, a number of new people this morning, I believe. I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And um, this is interesting for me. I'm um, coming to you on a new iPad. My um, laptop died on Wednesday, so I'm adjusting to... Uh, a different Zoom world. <laughs> um, so we'll see how this goes. Um, I want to talk today about history and karma and book banning. So um, um, and in some ways um, Zen is historical Buddhism or sometimes I've called it Confucian Buddhism, because uh, we're more concerned with history and story than, um, than earlier Buddhism. Um, uh, uh, Hongzhi Zhongzhui, who was a great 12th century teacher in our lineage, um, who I translated in Cultivating the Empty Field, said, no, actually, I'm not talking about Hongzhou now. I will later. I'm talking about <laughs> Shito or Sekito, another great ancestor in our tradition from the 8th century. And he said, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. So this is in the Song of the Grass Hut, which we will chant later on. Of completely. A lot of people do not think of then, yeah, just let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. But I want to talk about letting go. Uh, I would say letting go is the essential art of zazen. Letting go is, does not equal to denial. So, um, and this is this is an important difference and uh, has a lot of applications to our practice. So. Uh, Letting go actually equals facing the hundreds of years and facing ourselves. So the goal of Zazen is not to get rid of all thoughts and feelings, but to actually be present, to not ignore all of the thoughts and feelings, all of the events of our life and of our world, um, 
we have to uh, acknowledge our ancient twisted karma and the world's ancient twisted karma to really not be caught by it, to really let go of its power. So, um, letting go. Zazen is about facing, so that I think there may be a couple people here who are who had Zazen instruction this morning, maybe for the first time. Zazen Self. We face facing ourselves, facing uh, the discomfort of all the feelings that are. So uh, go in the middle of not ignoring, facing the situations of our life and of the world. I'll mention about the Fox but the stories, and it's about, and the punchline is to not ignore the line of not be caught by our ancient twisted karma, personally or communally until we can actually face it. You know, Dogen, our 13th century founder in Japan, talked about the essential art of Zazen as being being beyond thinking. So there's a story of one of the other great ancient ancestors, Yarshan, who was asked, what are you thinking about when you're sitting there so still and silent? And Yashan said, I think of not thinking. And the uh, student asks, oh, how do you think of not thinking? <laughs> so there's two Japanese negatives, Fushiryo and Hishiryo. Usually that was translated as non-thinking, which didn't mean anything to me. Uh, what's the difference between not thinking and non-thinking? Uh, uh, Shohaku Okamura, who I translated a few books with, uh, translated that as beyond thinking. Just because of that one word, beyond thinking, as opposed to non-thinking, I went and spent uh, more than two years living in Kyoto translating with Shohaku Okamura. And, and another friend, Kaz Tanahashi, one of his translations of Dogen, he calls beyond thinking. What is beyond thinking? Beyond thinking is not being caught by our thinking, by our thoughts and feelings, Thoughts and feelings naturally arise as we're sitting. And then we just let them go, and they may come back. And there's some space in between them. But the point isn't to get rid of our thinking. There's a a Zen school of lobotomy Zen that thinks if you just don't have any thoughts that, you know, everything will be all right. But no, 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 no. We sit in the middle of the world. We sit in the middle of thoughts and feelings, of confusion and delusion and so forth. So, um, but there is beyond thinking, which includes all of it. It's not how we usually think about thinking. It's this deeper awareness that goes beyond. So this is what happens in Zazen. Even the first time you sit, we are aware of uh, the aches in our knees or our shoulders or wherever. We are aware of the aches in our heart. We are aware of 
difficult thoughts and feelings, we don't ignore them. We don't deny them. So um, this is very relevant to what's going on right now in our country, where there's a major campaign to deny history, uh, banning books. Uh, they haven't started burning books yet, but uh, sometimes banning books leads to that. So, um, uh, there are now states where they're trying to ban any books that mention slavery or racism. In Tennessee, they're banning mouse because it talks about the Nazi Holocaust. There are banning books about LGBTQ people. I want to talk about that. Um, so some of the books that are um, along with Mouse, they're, they're banning To Kill a Mockingbird. They're banning Beloved by Toni Morrison. I would say, you know, I mean, that's one of my favorite books. That's, I think, the great American novel, with all due respect to Huck Finn and Moby Dick. Um, Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, should be required reading for all vote, for all people to vote in this country. Um, but uh, that's not likely to happen. Anyway, uh, but to ban it is just, you know, it's obscene. Um, uh, so um, this white supremacy sedition party that is has so much control over what happens in Washington, D.C. now, um, they don't want to make white children uncomfortable by hearing about slavery or about racism, even though, again, last week there was a young man killed by the police, young black man killed by the police in Minneapolis. They didn't learn anything from George Floyd uh, and his murder. So how do we face history and learn from history? And I think that the people who don't want their white children to be uncomfortable hearing about racism or slavery or LGBTQ people or about women's rights are uncomfortable themselves. The parents are uncomfortable because they don't want to face the reality of our country and our world and themselves. So um, this is... Uh, this is a real problem. Zen practice is about going beyond our comfort zone, being willing to be uncomfortable, being willing to uh, hear new information, being willing to hear uh, difficult comments, being willing to, to uh, not know all the answers being open to uh, how do we talk together? How do we share together? How do we listen to everybody? How do we listen to people's fears, to people's hurts? How do we um, open to that? This is, this is what's really difficult about Zen practice, not getting your legs into, funny, into some funny position. 
And it's necessary. Zen practice is about continuing, just showing up, sustaining that openness to facing the difficulties of the world and of our own lives. So when I uh, when my um, laptop died Wednesday, I had a bunch of notes for this talk, which now I uh, tried to <laughs> scrawl on this pa- on this page, and that, that means I have to try and read my own bad handwriting. <laughs> um, this is a difficult time, you know. The the, the book banners are also um, attacking women's health and women's rights. There was a Republican legislator, legislator, um, I think in Tennessee, I'm not sure, who said that um, that even in the case of rape, we can't allow abortion uh, if because somehow uh, I don't know if he said God, but some, but somehow a, a woman who gets into that position, well, they had just have to deal with it and just have to go through with having a child. This is obscene. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, uh, I have. To, I'm just trying to speak from uh, the sense of ethics and morality that are in the Bodhisattva precepts and the Bodhisattva ideal of. Uh, we sometimes say, "May all beings be happy." Of universal liberation, including, including everybody. This is difficult, especially now in these times. How do we express kindness to everyone? So uh, I mentioned the Fox Koan. Um, so I'll just briefly, the story goes that the great master Baijiang, who lived in the 8th century, was uh, when he gave talks, there was somebody in the assembly in the back, an old man, and it's eventually this old man came, came and told Baijiang that in some past eon, in some ancient age, he had been the teacher on Baijiang Mountain. And somebody asked him, um, do greatly cultivated people, are they uh, subject to cause and effect? When we talk about history, we're talking about cause and effect. We're talking about consequences. We're talking about, um, well, it's, it's the second noble truth, that things happen for a reason, and that everything we do has an effect. But this ancient teacher had said, no, greatly cultivated people are not subject to cause and effect, are not subject to karma. And, by, and, and because he said that, this old man said, he had become, he had spent 500 lives as a fox in, in, in East Asia, foxes are very not just tricksters, but very malevolent. So Baijiang, the current Baijiang in the story, Takujo is how you say his name in Japanese, great master said, greatly cultivated people are not blind to cause and effect. Do not, do not ignore cause and effect. So uh, this is axiomatic in Zen. We don't ignore history. We're not blind to history. There's also letting go and going beyond. <laughs> but uh, first we have to face cause and effect. We have to face the consequences that we all are facing communally in our society. And I'll I'll come back to how this affects our personal practice, 
come back to that later, because it very much does. How do we face cause and effect? How do we not ignore cause and effect? How do we not ignore the history, our, our country's history of racism, slavery, patriarchy, uh, wiping out, not or trying to wipe out the indigenous people? All of that cause, all of that cause and effect, all of that, that karma, which affects each of all of us in one way or another, and each each of us in a particular way. So, um, you know, Dr. King, Martin Luther King, talked about the fierce urgency of now, that we have to respond to this current situation. But he also talked about the long arc of history, bending towards justice. This is an encouraging encouragement. And also practical, it's very helpful to uh, see that, to see this wider view of history. This is an important part of Zen and Zen lore. That we are part of the web of cause and effect and that everything we do is part of that. Um, But also, you know, there's the immediacy of that and there's the longer view. So, Our Zen practice and tradition offers us a wider view of time and cause and effect. We talk about the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, who lived 2,500 years ago. I'm I'm talking about Baijan, who lived in the 8th century. I talk often about Dogen, who lived um, in the 1200s in Japan and brought this tradition from China to Japan. We talk about Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, my teacher's teacher, who um, brought this to California way, way back in the 1960s. (laughs) So all of this is part of this web uh, of interconnectedness in time, of interconnectedness of cause and effect and consequences in history. And we don't ignore that. But Hongzhi, who I started to who I mentioned before, Hongzhi Zhangzhui, who lived in the 1100s, um, he says, one thought of the 10,000 years goes beyond all the delusions. I think I translated it as disgrace, goes beyond all disgrace or defilement. Anyway, one thought of the 10,000 years. This is like Dr. King talking about the moral arc of the universe. And it's built into our Zen tradition that we we sometimes recite the names of uh, our our Dharma lineage and ancestors, going back to Shakyamuni and through Bodhidharma and the sixth ancestor and so forth. So we have a sense of not history in the sense of modern academic history necessarily. We have a sense of stories going way back, stories of cause and effect, stories of consequences. Stories of people who acted and spoke and sat zazen and tried to face history and the history of now. And uh, so here we are. Uh, 
I said before, the Zen is uh, historical Buddhism. I sometimes call this Confucian Buddhism. When Buddhism came to East Asia, it took on this, you know, Buddhism always takes on the uh, some integration with the culture that it's moving into. So now we have this American Buddhism developing. It's very young. It's only 50 years old or so. Maybe it's more by now. 70 years old. You know, depending on, depending on if you want to count Yoga and Senzaki and some of the early great Zen people who came, from, came to the West. Anyway, um, maybe it's a century old. But still, that's pretty new in terms of the history of how Buddhism shifts and changes. When it came to East Asia, it, adopt, it adopted in China and Japan kind of a Confucian viewpoint, which is to venerate the ancestors. So we do talk about Baijiang, Dogen, and Suzuki Roshi, and, and many, 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 many others. Uh, we, we, we honor our past. We honor history, or at least the versions of history that we have. The teaching stories, sometimes called koans, that are part of our practice now because they teach us about something of our own personal practice when we are willing to dig into them and really engage them. So um, uh, we tell stories. Zen is a tradition of storytelling. And then, even though Zen, according you know, attributed to Bodhidharma goes beyond words and letters. And that's the part about letting go. That's the part of about going beyond. But also, um, this going beyond words and letters has, has led to huge libraries full of commentaries on these ancient stories and commentaries on those commentaries. And now we're commenting on those commentaries on the commentaries about the commentaries anyway. <laughs> so there's a, there are libraries full of books about Zen history, to put it that way, all Zen stories. And we venerate the ancestors. We, we uh, very much appreciate that they kept alive this teaching and practice tradition, which we're now engaging <laughs> as best we can and struggling with and um, appreciating here now. So, uh, not not um, depending on words and letters, this Zen slogan, which has led to huge libraries of words and letters, uh, really means not being caught by them. How do we how do we not be caught by these stories? How do we not be caught by the history of racism and slavery in our country? For example, it means we don't ignore it. It means we pay attention to the history and consequences of patriarchy, for another example. How do we look at this situation and the causes and effects of it? And going beyond means, uh, okay, here we are. How do we practice with it, we say? How do we engage it? How do we, uh, in some ways, see through it, not be caught by it, but we can't not be caught by it. We can't let go of cause and effect of ancient history karma unless we know what it is. 
unless we study it. So we study the old stories. And Bajan was saying, uh, don't ignore cause and effect. Don't ignore history. Don't try and expunge all the history books so that people will feel more comfortable and not have to face the facts. Um, well, I don't know. Facts is a, is a, is a uh, <laughs> contentional, contentious word, contentious word now. Anyway, um, so I want to talk about some, another example of not facing cause and effect. This part of our world now. And again, this um, may be um, challenging to some of you, but I want to challenge the current call for war, the situation in the Ukraine. And a lot of the mass media and a lot of the politicians are saying, oh, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. We have to, we have to build up our troops. There's a great forget, forgetting of history involved in that. We're forgetting the history of Vietnam. This is recent history. There's also there's older history, but let's just look at the recent history of Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Bottom line, and I'm going to say more about this, but there are not military solutions to these kinds of problems. Our culture has, and maybe this has to do with uh, human karma in general, but there's this tendency to think, oh, well, we can, you know, this tendency towards aggression. And, okay, we need more military. We need to defeat. You know, so much of our language is about winning and losing and conquering and defeating. And so it's almost not to, hard not to talk about anything without talking about attacking. And, you know, it's, uh, this military is built into our culture. And it's really harmful. So um, this uh, strong push towards, oh, we have to have a war. We have to send in more troops. We have to make sure that Russia doesn't invade Ukraine. Well, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that Vladimir Putin is a good guy. We have to pay attention to what's going on. But tr trying, to, trying to just send in more troops is not a solution. Trying to conquer our so-called enemies is not a solution. This is something that um, we've learned in recent history. So some of that recent history. When the Soviet Union collapsed, an example of big change happening very suddenly, something that couldn't have been predicted, you know, just months before, like the end of apartheid or like uh, the Supreme Court uh, legalizing gay marriage, or, you know, so many examples. Change happens after lots of work. But the Soviet Union collapsed for lots of causes and conditions. Uh, I think one of them was um, uh, the nuclear disaster in the Ukraine, actually. But anyway, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the Secretary, United States Secretary of State at the time said to Gorbachev, who was the Prime Minister of the Soviet Union in Russia at the time, that um, NATO will not expand into East Asia. And um, 
NATO has spent $1.1 trillion on military compared to $65 billion, much less, but by Russia. Uh, there's this huge push for war. And, it, you know, it's not just a problem in our society. It's part of this pattern of human aggression that we have to overcome. We need to sponsor, speak for, uh, try and encourage cooperation and kindness rather than aggression and conquest. This is the challenge of humanity now. Um, But NATO's official goal is to increase military spending. Again, there's no military solution. We have to, as difficult as it often is, to pursue diplomacy. And there are forces that are, you know, besides our ancient twisted karma and the history of aggression in our species, there are current forces promoting this war that's being promoted by our media and by our most of our politicians, not all. Um, there are five companies, five corporations, massive corporations, Lockheed, General Dynamics, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and Boeing, to name names, not of, indivi- not of individuals, but of corporate institutions, who are um, making huge profits from war. They have uh, made $2 trillion Think since uh, 2001, 2001, 200 million of that, maybe it's 200 billion, has gone into, yeah, I think it's 200 billion, has gone into lobbying to encourage federal and state governments to have more wars because they make a lot of money selling weapons all over the world. The CEO of Raytheon recently talked about how the situation uh, in Yemen and Syria and the situation in the Ukraine is great for their business. They're going to be able to sell lots more weapons. And this um, space force that got started recently by the last president uh, is now... um, we're now spending more, more on that now than we are on healthcare, even in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's strange, it's bizarre, and it's really sad. And there will be consequences to this kind of thing. <sighs> so I want to encourage people to think about Another peace movement. (laughs) Some of us are veterans of peace movements. Back during Vietnam, part of how the Vietnam War ended, a big part of it, was that there was a peace movement, not just in the United States, but amongst the troops in Vietnam. And uh, the war couldn't be sustained. In the early 80s, there was a nuclear freeze movement trying to stop MX missiles. We now have these intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, that 
that movement in nuclear freeze movement in the early 80s actually accomplished. Didn't get abolished nuclear weapons, unfortunately, but there was a great, great decrease and there were treaties about not, not using nuclear weapons. So um, we're now spending, I think, $140 billion a year on nuclear weapons. And 53% of our natural, national budget goes into the military. Although nuclear weapons are in the energy department, I don't know if that's even included in that. It's, we're spending 10 times more on nuclear weapons than we are on the CDC, even in the middle of a pandemic. So how do we not ignore the, the cause and effect of history of that? We still have the, the United States government. People think that, there's, that nuclear weapons are sort of a thing of the past, but we still have a policy, our government, of first use, that we are saying that we will uh, do first use of nuclear weapons. And we still have many weapons on, on hair trigger, which means that if a president thinks that we're being attacked, and there have been many accidents where this almost happened, they have 10 minutes to decide whether to launch all the, all the nuclear weapons. This is so dangerous. So uh, peace movements have effects, as they did in Vietnam and during and in the early 80s. So uh, I would like to ask you to consider calling, contacting your representatives, senators, congresspeople, and saying, please don't go to war in the Ukraine. Military solutions don't work. Okay, that's, that's, about, that's so all the stuff about book banning and about our current military is about the world around us and the history of that and that we, that Bai Zhang said we shouldn't ignore. That we should face these cause these causes and effects and consequences. But I want to end by bringing this back home, to not ignoring uh, personal karma. So, as I said in the beginning, I'm working with this iPad. Some of you are, always come here by iPad, but it's strange to me. <laughs> Um, how many people are here? I can't. I I can see less of you than I used to be on my than it used to be on my uh, laptop, which died Wednesday, as I said at the beginning. So who else is here? Oops. Oh well. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I can see the second screen now. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jay. Deborah, hi. You're back from, from Green Gulch, I guess, or maybe you're still out there. Anyway, uh, so I'm just looking to see who's here. Randy's here. Anyway, and some people who I don't know yet. Eric Locker's here. Hi. Anyway, okay. Um, oops, oh, I lost it. Can you still hear me? Okay. So I want to uh, end by talking about personal karma because everything I've said applies there too. We have to face our personal history. And, you know, Zazen and Zen practice and Buddhist practice uh, works, it's all interconnected. How 
all of this is implied in the situation of our world and our society, is also part of our own personal situation, our own personal dharma position, as Dogen calls it. So, uh, how do we face our own personal karma? This is, this is um, how do we face it and also let go of it, you know? So I started out talking about letting go as the essential art of Sasan. But letting go includes um, facing what's in front of us, facing suchness in all its dimensions. Famously, Dogen, who I referred to before, said, to study the way, to study spiritual reality, to study the way is to study the self. So we look at the wall and we face ourselves. He also says to study the self is to let go of the self and to be awakened by all things. But we have to first study the self. And that means the self of our world and our society and everything around us. It also means our own uh, personal history. And, you know, I, I think of that as facing regrets. So um, we all, we've all made mistakes in our life. Or, Well, I shouldn't speak for anyone else. <laughs> Most human beings have made mistakes. And um, one of our teachings says that making mistakes is auspicious. We learn by making mistakes. And we may have many regrets about things we did or things we failed to do. I understand that in AA and other 12-step programs, part of the process is making amends. Sometimes it's not possible to make amends. There are people who have passed away who I wish I could make amends to, personally. We all have our own ancient twisted karma. So uh, the, the Bodhisattva path of universal liberation, trying to awaken all beings, not ignoring all beings, caring about the, the kindness of all beings, listening to all beings, includes listening to ourselves. It includes all the teachings of early Buddhism, Brahma Baharas and the Eightfold Path, and uh, anyway. Buddhism builds on itself. And it's, you know, that's happening in interesting, strange ways in, I don't know if strange, anyway, ways that are familiar to us in, in American Buddhism and Western Buddhism, integrating with Western psychology, which is a great tool, a great uh, skillful means, a great benefit, integrating with Western religion, um, integrating with Western social engagement, all of that is part of what we sometimes call American Buddhism. But personally speaking, we said we have a chance to acknowledge, which I think we'll do later, to acknowledge our ancient twisted karma. So all of the mistakes we've made, all of the regrets we might have, uh, at least some of us, I don't, you know, there might be one of you, some someone in 
in listening now who has not never made a mistake. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's helpful to make mistakes. We have to, tr- we have to, you know, trial and error. Skillful means is a process of trial and error. We, we try to be kind. We work at kindness. We work at communication. We work at facing our lives and facing the lives of those around us, listening to everyone in Sangha. And this is difficult. But we acknowledge our ancient twisted karma from beginning us greed, hate, and delusion, born to body, speech, and mind. It's important to forgive ourselves for being human beings who make mistakes. How do we learn from our mistakes? I've heard it said to make good mistakes. <laughs> Some mistakes are more harmful than others. It's true. So to let go of being caught by the web of conditioning, of, all, of personal conditioning, group conditioning, sangha conditioning, societal conditioning, all our ancient twisted karma. We have to forgive ourselves and forgive others for being human beings. How do we, one of our precepts is to not speak of the faults of others. To respect all people. I recently heard, went to a a seminar on Zoom where a very fine Buddhist teacher said that corporations don't have Buddha nature. Institutions don't have Buddha nature. All of us are Buddha, are Buddha nature. So, you know, we can, it's not that we shouldn't talk about difficulties in the world. So I've been talking about militarism. I've been talking about book banning and uh, slavery and racism and patriarchy and so forth. Um, we can talk about how those situations affect all of our lives. But it's not that we can blame any individual. Even in individuals who we think have caused great, great harm are all products of this web of causation, of cause and effect. And alas, there are people in our world who ignore cause and effect and go ahead and don't, don't look at the realities of reality of racism and slavery don't look at the realities of our history of militarism and so forth and act without without facing that and for ourselves studying our own personal history not wallowing in it or dwelling in it but just being open to thoughts and feelings that come up and they do come up in zazen if you keep sitting And breathing into it, sitting upright, which means inhaling and exhaling and facing our lives and facing the world, studying the self. When we Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. We can be aware of 
the 10,000 years and let go of delusions and defilements. And then in, you know, our friends in the world and everything, bring them up again. But how do we not be caught by that? And I'm suggesting that not being caught by history, personal history, history of our society and world means uh, looking at it, facing it, not turning away, not being afraid. So a lot of this is about fear. There's the, there's a great promotion of fear now in our, uh, well, in our mass media anyway, by our politicians. We should be afraid of Russia. We should be afraid of China. And I'm not saying that, that, that Russia and China are perfect, wonderful societies, unlike ours, but um, uh, facing the situation of cause and effect, facing ancient twisted karma uh, can help us to be present and try to respond uprightly with diplomacy to each other as well as, you know, between countries. So, sorry, that's a lot. (laughs) One talk. I encourage people giving talks to not try and talk about too much sometimes. And recently I felt like I can't talk about anything without talking about everything. It's also interconnected. So I'll stop. <laughs> and I want to hear your comments, responses, questions, reflections on any of this. Um, so, uh, Ruben, are you still here? Ruben is our host. Um, Maybe Ruben. Has been kicked off the internet. I'll, I'll happily help call on people to again. Okay, David Ray, thank you. So, um, yes, so uh, again, please feel free, even if you're here for the first time, to um, respond, question, reflect on any of what I've been talking about. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, can you still hear me? My, my, Yes. My new iPad is doing things that I don't understand. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, David Ray, would you help me call on people? If you, if I, if we, you can't, if we can't see you, you can go to the participants window, and there's a function there where you can hit the raise hands thing. So, please, comments, questions. Um, may I make a comment here? Please. Yes. Yeah, Mustafa here. I, I was going to say, um, when, when we were talking about history, it kind of struck me. And it, by studying the history, you can also think about like what actions you might be able to take and think about the effect they might have in the future. So it, the studying of the history actually can influence what actions you might be able to take. And you might actually draw from past action what might be most effective and things that might be well-meaning, but that don't work really well. And I think that's true in, you know, personal life or, you know, activism or whatever other, other domains. Yes, thank you. There's an important Buddhist teaching called skillful means, which is a way of, it's actually a teaching of compassion to pay attention to the different needs of different beings and try to respond appropriately. 
And, you know, Buddhas understand it all and they can do that perfectly. But for, for the rest of us as Bodhisattva practitioners, it's trial and error. And even for Buddha, it's trial, trial and error sometimes. We, uh, as you were saying, Mustafa, we try things and we make mistakes. So, yes, thank you. Other comments, responses? Eve's hand is up. Hello, Eve. I don't see you, but I... When you talk about, about fear, I mean, I think one of the things going on is, is fear of complexity and fear of uncertainty. Um, and to me, that applies to the study of history as well. Um, and there are, you know, I, I think um, excesses on both, you know, the left and, and, the, and the right. Um, that, you know, the idea that you can straitjacket history into a, a single narrative um, you know, is I think problematic. Um, I, I think that kids, uh, you know, parents of, of, you know, of white kids who complain about being, um, you know, made to feel responsible for, for the tragedies of the past and, and made to feel guilty. I, I mean, I think they do have a legitimate complaint. And I mean, I think there's been good stuff written under the umbrella of critical race theory. There's also been some, you know, problematic work. I mean, there have been, you know, there are historians who I think have legitimate critiques of some of the stuff coming out of the 1619 project. Um, And when you talk about banning books, I mean, people on the left have, you know, organized to ban um, Huckleberry Finn because it uses the N word. I mean, there's been, you know, more book banning coming from the right than the left, but there has been some coming from the left. And, you know, there have been, I think, you know, excesses of of political correctness that make it difficult for people to speak their own experience and their own truth. I mean, one um, book that I think is really important is Arlie Hochschild's Strangers in Their Own Land, where, you know, she is a you know, well-meaning, um, you know, left coast person um, went to Louisiana to try to find out more about, um, you know, what people on the right there were were experiencing in their lives and 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 how that connected to you know to some of the the rhetoric um, and and fueling some of the divisions that have gone on. Um, and I mean, I totally agree that. You know, when you're talking about um, war and, and, and militarism and, and corporate involvement, that, that, that you know, war is not a, a, a solution um, to threats to democracy. But I think that, you know, what we have to look to is, you know, what, what does a real democracy look like? How can we strengthen conversations that reflect what, you know, democracy can look like in a, you know, multicultural, pluralistic society? Um, and, and that means, I think, you know, some living with the fact that we're all, um, the, you know, we're all children of both the oppressed and the oppressors. And, um, uh, and, and there isn't. I think, you know, one simplistic narrative that 
you know, that can address the, 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 the interactions between, you know, for instance, gender, race, um, class, and, and, and the effect that it has on and inequity in, in, in society. And I mean, one thing that's struck me lately is the importance of satire and, and the importance of humor and, and, and making sure that there's spaces for that to live. And, you know, as I said, that's, that's been kind of stomped on by, um, you know, people on both sides of the political spectrum. I have a student that lives in New Orleans and he was talking about, you know, the kinds of political satire that are central to, to Mardi Gras. Um, and then, and then that's, that's been important for, for him. And I, I don't think it's accidental that, you know, Zelensky in Ukraine was, was a, a, a comedian as well as a lawyer. Although I guess recently he's been, you know, critiqued for, for, for also, you know, in some ways like Putin trying to centralize his own power, but, you know, making, making the spaces. So, so, I mean, I think, um, you know, in terms of, I guess, what I'd like to see is a, a peace movement. I, I, I think there's two things. I think, um, you know, trying to figure out how we can listen to each other and talk to each other, like I said, in ways that encourage true democracy and and making sure that there is a space for 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 humor and satire, which is is one one weapon against um, overly simplistic narratives. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Um, a few responses to that. Um, just uh, democracy, which seems to be threatened now, is an ideal. Uh, maybe we've never had it completely in this country. Um, and now voting rights are being attacked and so forth. Um, but uh, it's an aspiration. Uh, and... Um, you know, Dr. King talked about that as developing the rights of democracy. So just to say that, and and that this and that it, it is being seriously threatened right now. Um, but I also wanted to talk about, um, well, yes, to Huck Finn. Huck Finn, along with Beloved, are important to read. But um, you know, you were talking about ideologies. I don't know what left and right mean anymore. You know. Um, Maybe that's just my problem, but um, there's this, uh, another important Zen koan, Zen story about uh, a monk going out on pilgrimage um, and his teacher, Dizong, Japanese Jizo, said to him, what's the purpose of your pilgrimage? Why are you going out wandering? Why are you going to go out and wander around and meet other teachers and all of that, something that's still going on in Zen today. Uh, and what's, when asked what, what was the purpose of it, he said, I don't know. And Dizong said, not knowing is most intimate, not knowing is nearest. So our, our practice is not knowing. And that completely accords with what you were saying, Eve, that people who have, people who have entrenched ideologies um, you know, who think they have the answer to what is the strategy or tactics to respond to some situation, um, gets, that gets in the way. So not knowing is, uh, you know, not knowing is maybe not the whole answer. It's beyond not knowing and knowing, as another one of our uh, famous koans says. But, you know, to be open 
to not having the answers. And whatever I think might be a good response to anything that's going on these days, um, um, you know, that might be my response. That's not necessarily um, um, what everyone should do. So Sangha's about we each, you know, we're all connected, totally connected, and we're all, you know, particular. Each of in, in Zoom <laughs> exemplifies that each of us in their own box. But even when we're practicing in person, uh, we're, we are, um, we all have a particular way of responding. So not being hung up on some particular uh, ideology of knowing this is really important. That's letting go. Yes, uh, Mara? Hi. Um, so I have a question. Um, a lot of times when I go to engage Buddhism type of things or read books, people talk a lot about fear and definitely as a negative where it's something that paralyzes you, it prevents you from doing what you should do. Um, but I also sometimes think that there's a place for, say, a risk assessment. And for example, if you are a person of color, you're queer, you're disabled, activism carries a lot higher level of risk for you than it does for somebody who's, you know, young, white, male, healthy, able-bodied, and all yes. that. So I was wondering if you could speak to kind of the distinction between the bad kind of fear versus, you know, maybe this is just too risky for me individually kind of a situation. Yes, I agree with you completely. Um, uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It's facing our fears. And, you know, this is <laughs> this is an immediate situation for our song because we're trying to figure out how to get back to sitting in person, which we were doing for a month, uh, month or so ago. And, um, you know, with COVID is, is changing. And so, you know, we each have to make our own risk assessment as to our own personal situation. I think that applies in the situations you're talking about as well. So even though, you know, I have uh, myself gone to demonstrations and been arrested for civil disobedience back during Vietnam, back during the nuclear freeze back during the lead up to the war, war in Iraq. Uh, I'm not, I would not recommend that to anyone particularly. I'm happy to talk about it if anyone's interested, but um, you know, it's changed and it's maybe more risky now. And everything you said about, about that. So facing, it's not, it's about, it's not about getting rid of fear. It's about looking at fear looking what you're afraid of and, and working with that. So yes, I agree with you. Thank you. That's that's important. Fear is a part of the reality we face when we acknowledge cause and effect. Yes, thank you. Other comments, questions, responses? David Ray or oh, uh, Eileen has something. Hi, I. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm responding, I think, mainly, Eve, you, you spoke a lot of things that I would not have spoken <laughs> very well. Thank you. Um, and throughout this whole talk, I've been thinking of um, uh, Joan Didion, you know, we tell, tell ourselves stories in order to live. The center will not hold. And it's almost like we're not almost like we're, we're, we're I think we are sitting in a big, big old Mm, example of that 
um, in the world today. Uh, if, if, if we're telling ourselves stories, we're sitting and there are all these stories and you, you let them go and you look at your fear, or you look at the story, but we have our own individual stories. We have our collective um, stories. And then, then that collective can be divided any which way, depending on who you are, um, the identity to the co- whatever collective you are attached to or identify with is probably better. And then you have this whole wide world full of people telling themselves stories in order to live. Um, and very often, you know, I don't want to start, I don't know what I'm, I, it, 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 cognitive dissonance in order to hold on to those stories in relation to others stories that you see the cognitive dissonance starts and cognitive dissonance starts we all know you get all sorts of defensiveness and anger and war and book burning and all those things happen and i'm just thinking in those terms um also the buddhist concept which i think is more than a concept of we're all connected so there are all of these voices Oh my God! Remember uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha with all the with the river and the voices and the but the final. I how do we hear these stories? Hear our own stories? Hear other stories? They are just as human as we are, and maybe they were plunked down into some awful society that's you know really confusing them. But uh, that's my judgment. It's probably right, but no, that's my judgment. How do we go to the humanity? Of others before we start um, trying to connect, trying to negotiate. Uh, like you're not negotiating. Do you see it the way I see it? How do you have that conversation with somebody with a gun? I'm not sure. Um, and just as briefly as I can, this uh, month ago or so, I stayed up in Crestone, Colorado, and there's a lot of a lot of energy there and a lot of um, a lot of interesting characters. And I, my next door neighbors happen to be these kind of freewheeling, uh, I may have brought this up before, freewheeling, um, they just let go of all of their possessions and people kind of, when they need, things have shown up. Um, and he, he's lovely and she's lovely. They're from Georgia. And he, no, he's from Georgia. She's from Alabama. And the Southern accents kind of flip me up because I'm not used to hearing them. I'm a New Yorker, you know. And it's the spirituality of these people, she, I don't know, the was extraordinary and also i mean really the wisdom and and the and the light coming from them was amazing and uh also they were queuing on <laughs> okay <laughs> so what the hell do you do would do with that when you're talking to people and i think there's probably more of that kind of that's an extreme example probably more and we did Actually, we did manage to talk, and I did manage to get something in. I think I let. I think I got them to understand that Ashkenazi Jews are not this crazy race of people who are trying to. It's amazing the stuff that that, that they believe. Um, so, how, how do you have these conversations, and without starting a war, without uh, telling the other one that they're crazy or dangerous? I, I don't know. So it's a, it's a, I'm posing a question, but it's. It's more on the, um, I just see this forest of stories. I don't know what, what to do yes. with that. <laughs> okay. Just to respond briefly, I think David Ray also wants to respond. But um, yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot. How do we talk with people who have very different worldviews? Um, 
And one thing is to not try and convert them, to not, not to try and start a debate, because that's, uh, that's usually futile, futile. Um, um, but um, how do we just listen to them and try and find the spaces where we share uh, common values, common perspectives, common fears, and so forth. And from speaking in that way, you know, maybe you can introduce your different worldview, but uh, trying to rush in and convert people doesn't really uh, <laughs> help. So it's a big challenge now. Uh, our, our, our country and our world is very divided, but it doesn't mean that we can't find commonality with people who really disagree with us. So uh, thank you for that, for that story and that question. And uh, it's, uh, it's a real question now. So thank you. David Ray, did you want to say something? Well, it's, it's not, I do, I do. It's not, it's not so much a direct response to, to what Eileen said. I, I, what, what an amazing story, but um, um, there, there are, are two, uh, two groups of people that I, that I tend to place a high level of, of hope and, and confidence in. And one is young people um, because I, because I, I teach and uh, I taught in, in China for, for four summers in a row. And, and um, it, it was remarkable because um, the, the values that I, that I saw in, in these young people who were admittedly highly privileged um, were so commendable and admirable uh, to me in so many ways. Um, I visited the LGBTQ center in, in Beijing. Um, one year, um, so, so my, my co-instructor was a, uh, is a sociologist who has been doing a lot of work with PFLAG in China. And uh, one day in class, a student, a student opened her mouth and came out. She said, as a lesbian, um, I'm so grateful for the articles that we read about the experience of people growing up uh, and so many things that I thought were my own unique experience turn out to be common experience. Nobody gasped, nobody laughed. Um, this is a group of, of Chinese high school students. So uh, the, the other, the other, uh, another thing I want to say is that book, book banning seems not just absurd, but also quite futile in the world that we live in. Um, uh, any, any young person who wants access to any bit of information uh, can get it. And uh, it's no longer a world in which people do can. It's no longer a world in which people can be barred from access to representation of people who look like them. You know, anybody now anywhere on the planet can see, for example, LGBTQ people who look successful and happy and healthy and are laughing and 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 making fun of people who who want to oppress them. Um, you know, so that kind of satire, you know, is is thriving. Um, the other, the other class of people that 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 I, that I want to signal my my faith and confidence in is uh, sort of formidable matrons. Because another thing that I heard when I was in China was that uh, the government had just you know once again banned all LGBTQ representation, and I was told that that, that a lot of formidable matronly women descended upon the TV stations to say you know my son or, or my daughter is a, is a citizen of China and their life and their nature should be represented on on your station and of course Chinese culture being what it is you know <laughs> the poor executive had to sit there politely you know and listen to to this woman who he had to respect um so anyway though, you know I, in some ways I, I feel like uh like like the um the internet is is kind of like uh like a new version of of the silk road uh i'm, I'm thinking about uh, 
about how the how the, the version of, of of Buddhism that we practice is a product of this of this Silk Road um, exchange. And, and I don't know. I'm so um, th- those are things that I feel grateful and 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 in some measure hopeful and 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 confident about. Thank you very much, David. Yes, there is plenty to be, there are things to be hopeful about or or signs of hope and young people and you're talking about matrons. I I have to tell a story about when I was living in Japan and uh, Tanaka Shinkai Roshi, the teacher I was doing sessions with, um, uh, I was asking about Japanese Buddhism and he said, Japanese Buddhism lives in the old women now. <laughs> and on my, the street where I lived, um, there were a lot of old women. And they were out on the street early in the morning cleaning, washing down the street, cleaning the streets, and, and sending off the, the kids to, to school. And that you can see the spirit of, <laughs> of practice and of awareness there. So, yes, um, uh, it's not the, the situation of our world is challenging it's not hopeless um we to to think that that we should just you know the climate climate breakdown is going to destroy all of humanity and it's there's nothing we can do that's not realistic there are things there you know there's going to be lots of damage there has been lots of damage The, the pandemic has been terrible but um there are ways in which we can move forward. So thank you for that, David Ray. Um, so Ruben and or David Ray, uh, I can't see all the people here. So please uh, let, uh, call on people. Is there anybody who hasn't spoken yet who has something to add, please. If I mean, I defer to anybody who hasn't spoken yet, but nobody said anything. I I just wanted to to have a shout out as far as, you know, when we're looking at at spots of hope, um, you know, for both uh, Tigan and David, I want to shout out to teachers Um, because, you know, and I mean, it's true, we've got all this information, but the it's so it's not the information itself. It's. the skills that we need to critically assess it. And that's what we look to teachers for. And, um, you know, teachers have been really important in my own life. And um, I, I, you know, this last, well, one day, I, the first book, you know, that I read that, that really helped me um, critically assess information was, was Hayakawa's Language and Thought and Action. And I finished reading that 50 years ago on January the 31st, um, uh, 1972. And, you know, it was significant enough to me that, you know, I remembered that. And I, I reached out to my ninth grade English teacher. Um, and I was, you know, I did get him on email and I talked to him and he was, um, you know, he said, anyway, he, he did remember me, which frankly didn't surprise me, but, um, he, um, you know, he did, he, he was, you know, appreciative of the fact that he, that I still remembered him and, you know, remembered the class. And I, yeah, so I just wanted to, to say, um, yeah, that, that, you know, teachers are really important and really valuable. And thank you to all of, 
all, all of you teachers. Thank you. Uh, thanks again. Um, uh, you know, the, the inter- David Ray was talking about the internet as a way of uh, communicating. And, you know, I, I, I heard that when Mouse, the story of this graphic novel about the Nazi Holocaust was banned, um, that it, it, it became number one on the Amazon list or something. So, yeah, that's an example. There is also all this disinformation that's spread on the Internet. So I think Eve, Eve is right that critical thinking, you know, uh, caring about what's happening is important. So um, um, maybe we're finished if there's nobody else with their hands up. I just wanted to say hi to Deborah. How are you? I, I haven't heard from you in a while. You're still out in California? Maybe she can't hear me. It looks like she has left the building. Her 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 uh, box is still there. I don't. This, Here I, I am. I'm sorry. I'm on a phone. Oh, hey, Deborah. Hi. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you, and um, I appreciated your talk today about non-thinking. And I'm doing thinking. Beyond thinking. (laughs) I was just going to say, though, just as a human person, these issues are very overwhelming. And it is one thing to approach them, but it's also extremely challenging to approach them. So I'm just trying to bring in the human um, component of our frailty and our vulnerability. You know, Zazen helps, but, you know, what... Sometimes people, I think, may struggle. What direction do I take? I know I have. So I just wanted to throw that in. Thank you. Yes, this is, this is really, this is challenging stuff. Facing our lives, facing the wall, facing what's going on in our world. It's not easy. It's not. And, and then what response, of, what response do we have? So. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, I can talk about responses. Well, mainly I want to say that there are responses, but that there's not one right response. That's the not knowing part. And we have to be willing to shift our response depending on how it, how it fits. And uh, so this is really challenging stuff. And, and this is the uh, meat and potatoes, excuse the expression, for, of our Zen practice. Um, uh, this practice is challenging in, in various ways, physically, emotionally, mentally, socially. Um, so again, uh, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to respond is exactly the right response. And then looking around and seeing well, those people are responding to this situation in a way that seems helpful to me. So I'll, you know, work with that, those people. You know, that that kind of being able to look around and seeing what seems helpful. And um, it's not easy. This is ch- difficult stuff. Being a human being and being alive is a difficult practice. But here we are. And yes, we should give ourselves permission to, uh, you know, not rush into some response and to spend time. So, you know, our practice is sitting still, uprightly, 
inhaling and exhaling and enjoying our inhale and exhale. And, um, and sometimes the best response is just silence. It's just to keep sitting. If, we're not, if we don't see anything to do, just keep sitting. That's a response in itself. That can make a difference. So um, thank you for that, Deborah. And thank you all for listening.